We won't say as much about all of human life and um, the meaning of the universe and everything else as we might have. Um, so there was a time when Essay on Man was like Pope's most famous poem, and that it actually got taught in philosophy classes. Um, what did you think of it? Helpful, not helpful, um, interesting in any way, not so much. It's weird to go back to poetry. Yeah, back to the heroic couplet. Yeah, it's did did you did you think? Oh my God, I can't believe we spent the first half of the semester reading this kind of stuff. <laughs> when you went back to it, seriously, you're giving well, a mean, smile, I've, but it's I've a sly it, smile. I've done it before, so it was just sort of like. Going back to it, it's just switching in your mind. It's not much, It's not really like, oh, I can't believe we spent so much time on him. It's more of, like, I feel like we've moved forward, and then it's just going back. Yeah. Um, it may... I, I, I'm thinking that it might have had the effect... I actually think it's interesting to do it this way, which is, of course, entirely accidental. Um, and I don't really see how, next time I teach this class, I can do that intentionally, but maybe I can. Um, but I think it really does kind of bring out how different Wordsworth and Coleridge are um, from Pope. And maybe also, in a way, how, more, how much more congenial they are um, to a modern sensibility. That is, that the kind of meditativeness that you get in Wordsworth and Coleridge um, isn't constricted by form. Um, or another way of putting it might be to say that it isn't um, a celebration of a certain kind of form. Um, we talked about, early on in this course, um, when we were doing Religio Laici, um, and this is probably Pope's um, uh, version of that, um, Pope who admired Dryden in every way, or in almost every way, um, you can see this as, as one of those accounts that Pope gives of um, his own beliefs and his own view of what you can know without revelation. There's no Bible in Essay on Man. Um, there's, there, although it does to some extent rely on a biblical story, um, the biblical story it relies on is essentially that um, kings came late in human history um, as they did for the children of Israel. That is, that the children of Israel, um, as you know from the book of Judges, said, um, we want a king just like the other nations. And um, the, uh, the prophet said, that's not a good idea, um, but they insisted. Um, so then the question is, well, what do we think about kings? And there's no sense in Pope, um, much less even than in Dryden, that, the king, that kings rule by divine right. Um, if you want to compare um, the essay on man to another Dryden poem, Absalom and Achitophel might be the one more to contrast it with than to compare it with, um, or really to do both. Um, that is, both of them have a view of kingship as in the service of the nation. But um, Pope is not a monarchist in the way that Dryden is. Um, Dryden thinks you really need a king. Pope thinks a king is one way to handle something that's not best handled by kingship. Um, not best handled by kingship because kings inevitably start believing in their own sacredness and in their own power. 
Um, but where, so the contrast would be that Dryden is much more monarchical than Pope. Um, the comparison would be that both of them have a view of kingship, as I say, in the service of society rather than um, a privileged position in society, a quasi-divine position in society. Um, so, so, so they're not entirely opposite to each other, but you could almost say that Pope is acknowledging Dryden's point of view as one of the ways that you can think through um, the stages that he's actually thinking through. The point about those stages being that they're all trying to solve um, the same problem, which is the problem of um, living harmoniously, um, which is what we're designed to do and what we're designed to be. Um, so so that's, the, that's the very explicit comparison you can make with Dryden. More um, broadly, and this now recurs to what we were talking about when we did relig Religiolatia as well, there is again the question of what authority do poets have to pronounce on um, the world of morality, of politics, of human history, of philosophy, of theology. Um, why are poets in any way anything other than an average person um, who happen uh, who happen to be able, who happens to be able to write well? Um, that is the fact that Pope is so good at rhyming. Why should we um, think that he has anything to say about something that goes beyond poetry? Why would his um, ideas, insofar as they're not literary, of course literary ideas matter um, when you're doing literature, and of course there isn't a sharp boundary, or there shouldn't be a sharp boundary. I actually, I'm of two minds about this. That is, I think there both should and shouldn't be a sharp boundary between literature and the rest of the world. Um, but from the point of view of understanding um, just very basically what's going on in a work of literature, um, of course there isn't a sharp boundary between literature and the rest of the world. You have to understand um, human motivation when you're looking at literary characters. You have to understand human expectation. You have to understand human interaction. You have to understand um, who's doing right in a story and who's doing wrong in a story. Um, all of these things are things that, that, that um, merge with um, our understanding of real people, of real events, um, of real history. Um, so, so you could say, without much hubris, that to be a good writer you have to be a pretty decent psychologist. Um, not, um, not, a, not a decent psychologist in terms of the psychology department, um, but a decent psychologist in the sense of having a pretty good sense of what people are like and how they're likely to feel under certain conditions and um, who's more likely to be the kind of person who is a good psychologist um, in a situation and who isn't, who's going to be clueless about their neighbors and who isn't, who's going to think, I mean, to take a great example from Shakespeare, um, did we do much to do in Shakespeare last year? I don't think we did. Um, but an example in Shakespeare is a great example from Much Ado About Nothing is um, that Don Pedro, who is the father of Hero and the um, uncle of her orphaned cousin, Beatrice. Beatrice is a constant wisecracker. She's, she's a heroine of the play. She's, she's one of Shakespeare's great heroines. 
and she's um, always just making fun. And she makes fun of um, a couple of the men. Um, and um, then um, Pedro says, no, I'm sorry, it's not Pedro, it's Leonardo says of her, um, her, her uncle says to Don Pedro, who's kind of uh, an authority figure who likes her and finds her fetching, um, says, for God, um, an excellent humorous lady. And um, then her uncle says of her, she is never sad. Um, she's always married. She is never sad, but when she sleeps, and not even sad then, for I have heard my daughter say that she hath often dreamt of sorrow, but waked herself with laughing. And that's a really crucial line in the play. It means that um, Beatrice's funniness, her wit, her sparkling ebullience, there's, um, there's an undertone of sorrow there um, that she's overcoming. But the very person who tells us this doesn't get it. Um, he says she, she's never even sad even when she's asleep. Um, if a sad thought strikes her when she's asleep, she just laughs it off. Isn't that great? So what do we know? We know that there are two... Um, two differing views of human psychology, or two, sorry, differing depths of human psychology there, and that um, Leonardo is not very deep about the psychology of his niece. But we are. We can see, we can understand her by understanding his misunderstanding of her, or his only partial understanding of her. So of course there's continuity between our sense of literary characters, our sense of um, what goes on in a literary work, and our sense of real life. Otherwise, we'd have no interest in literary works if we didn't think that, that these um, figures were half real, somewhat real, like real people. Um, we'd have no interest in them at all. Um, it would be like watching you know, um, uh, some kind of Wolfram um, uh, artificial life bot just going on and on. It's not a good story. Keeps you five minutes, but that's about it. Um, however, that fact doesn't mean that we would. It, it might mean that we would trust a writer, um, a writer's judgment about a human being. That is, that if a writer says, um, for example, that George the Third was really selfish, and if that writer gives us characters who strike us as um, real, round to use the enforcer's term, um, then we might believe that that writer's um, personal judgment of someone that he knew or knew about because he was politically a highly present person, we might believe that writer's judgment. Um, Freud famously said that the poets were there before him. But what authority does a writer have to pronounce on God? What would Pope know because, or Jane Austen know, or even Shakespeare know, and Shakespeare, of course, is the hardest case because Shakespeare seemed to have known everything, but what would Shakespeare's ideas about God, um, what authority would they have just because he, was, he had um, really smart and deep and penetrating um, ideas about old men? Um, it's not that God is an old man, or maybe he is, but that's not how Shakespeare represents him, and I think it's striking that Shakespeare actually never talks about God. Um, that is that what Shakespeare talks about is what he knows and what he knows is human psychology but Dryden and Pope are setting themselves up as people who can make claims about um, 
justice and philosophy and theology and truth. And the question is, what entitles them to those claims? One answer is going to be simply that they're entitled to those claims as human beings and that um, they can put those claims very, very well because they're so good at writing poetry. Um, this is what oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed, um, to go back to the line we started with in this course, that, that is that um, they're good at expressing. They're not claiming... Um, they're not so much claiming originality of thought when they do philosophical poetry. Um, they're claiming that they can put that thought in ways that are uh, that 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 strike readers as clear and helpful um, and logical in exposition. Um, but Pope and Dryden are making greater claims than that. They're actually claiming to um, have special insight, and now. And that's okay, too. Um, anyone who writes a paper is supposed to be claiming to have special insight. Um, you know, it's what you fake if you don't actually have it when you write a paper for this class. Um, this is my idea. That's why we're so against plagiarism, because we want your ideas, your insight, the insight that you've worked up on this stuff. Um, as human beings, these are important issues. The issue of God, the issue of justice in the universe, the issue of, of um, whether to behave morally and why. Um, the issue of whether that question is itself um, a, a question that shows you to be good or bad. Those are all questions that by virtue of being human they can have. And by virtue of being human they can think that if they thought hard about this and came to some conclusions um, it's okay for them um, to express those conclusions. And I think that's fine also, but it may be, and this is why um, we're starting, and God knows maybe even ending with this question, but it may be that if you think about poetry the way Coleridge and Wordsworth do, you'll have a different view of, let's just call it ontology, let's just call it how the universe is, how the world is, how life is, let's make all those things synonymous. Um, that you might have a different view of those things from your view um, if you write poetry the way Dryden and Pope do. You could, of course, turn it around, and you could say that one view of the universe will induce you to write like Byron, like, Byron, like Dryden and Pope, um, because it'll be so orderly. And another view of the universe will induce you to write like Coleridge and Wordsworth, because what you're going to be doing is exploring um, rather than assuming that it will all fit together really, really elegantly. Um, Dryden and Pope are extraordinarily elegant writers. Um, I don't mean elegant as in always in evening clothes. Obviously, they're, they're not. But I mean whatever they wear, they wear well. Um, whatever they do, they do well. If you like Fred Astaire, and I'm not even going to ask because the very idea that you might not know what I'm talking about is too horrible to contemplate. Um, the very idea that you might not know that Fred Astaire is, is thought to be the greatest dancer ever known um, is something that I just can't allow into my mind. Um, but um, Fred Astaire in Top Hat, um, one of the very interesting things about that movie in the history of fashion was it was the it was where the idea of a tweed jacket and and pants of a different color you know standard kind of 
um, casual elegance, the kind of uh, um, J. Crew or even um, Ralph Lauren look. Um, that was invented by Fred Astaire in that movie. Um, first time that people looked could look well dressed and well put together without wearing at least a suit, um, to say nothing of evening clothes, but without wearing at least matching um, vest, pants, and jacket. Um, but Fred Astaire, everything he does is elegant. Um, of course, in real life, he wore jeans. He hated um, he hated formal clothing, but he wore jeans elegantly. But everything in every movie, everything he wears in every movie is elegant. Um, same with Pope and Dryden. Remember that line in Pope is those move easiest who have learned to dance. That could be a description of Fred Astaire and of the kind of elegance we're talking about. So Dryden and Pope have a very elegant view of the universe. See the universe, see God, see the structure of being as put together in a very elegant way. Whereas um, Wordsworth and Coleridge have a far more meandering view they don't see everything as from, from the fall of a sparrow, which is one of the things that Pope refers to, um, to the fall of an empire, um, as equally part of God's perfect plan. They don't see God as a clawed-like painter who is aware of every single drop of paint on a vast, vast canvas. Um, if they believe, and they came to believe, but what their pantheism consists in is a sense that um, there's beauty everywhere, but it's also in the mind that perceives it, as well as in um, the beautiful world. Um, and wandering around in the world, rather than putting it together systematically, is actually an extremely high good. So to return to the heroic couplet is, in a way, to have made vivid for us the question of um, how form dictates thought. You wouldn't want to say, I think, that Pope and Dryden wrote heroic couplets because this is the way um, they thought, um, as much as heroic couplets was how poetry was written at the time, starting, um, well, Dryden was largely responsible for it, but it was a choice he made, not a thing he invented. Um, as we saw when, at the beginning of this class when we looked at Cooper's Hill, at Denham's Cooper, Cooper's Hill. Um, and that historically, therefore, um, the kind of society that appreciated heroic couplets would be the kind of society that appreciated systematicity in thinking. This is putting it very crudely. Um, but it's not that they thought systematically and then wrote heroic couplets. It's that they wrote heroic couplets and this caused them to think systematically. Um, by the time you get to Thompson, who's kind of wandering around in landscapes, but as I said before, not quite with his own point of view, by the time you get to Collins or Smart, and certainly by the time you get to Coleridge and Wordsworth, um, what you have is a revolution against that kind of systematic thinking. Um, a view that nature is not systematic. We talked a little bit about the sublime. I guess I'm trying to throw everything in right now at once. We talked a little bit about the sublime um, in this class. And um, the distinction that Burke makes between be the beautiful and the sublime, which we talked about in terms of pleasure versus delight. Do you remember that? Um, so that beauty gives you pleasure, but the sublime gives you delight. 
where delight is is greater than pleasure because it's a fear, it's something fearful or terrifying averted. Um, I think I said this, but I'll repeat it, and if I didn't say it, then you'll hear it for the first time. Um, our word terrific and our word awesome, um, those are words of extremely high praise, but their roots are terrible and awful. That's not quite true of awesome, but um, they're very close in meaning to terrible and awful. That is, um, something terrific is terrible or terrifying is even closer. Um, something terrific is terrifying, except that we don't need to be terrified. Um, our first impulse is, te is terror, and then um, we have the power, for whatever reason, not to feel terror, but to feel all the intensity of terror. And then you would call that terrific. In, um, in, in terrific, not in the oh, that's terrific. You got your paper in on time. Terrific, which is which is obviously a um, uh, kind of twentieth century. It's like it's like when English people talk about something being brilliant. So I'll meet you at five. Brilliant. Um, it's um, it's not, um, but terrific in um, in Herman Melville or in Ishmael saying that um, the white whale is terrific. Um, that is. It's not quite terror-inspiring, but could be. That's the sublime. Um, the awesome um, is close to the um, awful, which for us is very close to the terrifying, something that's, that's scary and, and, well, the terrible. Um, but, um, but now we just get the awe without the bad part of that awe. The terrible swift sword in the um, Battle Hymn of the Republic. Um, you know that, you know it, right? Um, he's trampled out the vineyards where the great of wrath is, are stored. Um, what's he doing with his terrible swift sword? He's beating it into a plowshare. What is he doing? Beating it into a plowshare. No, 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 no. He's going against the Confederates. He the faithful, I think. Sorry? Yeah, he oh good. It loses looses the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. Okay, maybe I didn't know that. I think it's one of those things you just don't know, except you know it. Um, <laughs> one of those things, one I just don't know. I'll have to ask people. Did other people know that? Loses the faithful lightning of his terrible. All right. Anyhow, terrible in that phrase is um, not. Uh, it's it causes terror, but we celebrate it for the very fact that it causes terror on, its, on his enemies. So all of that goes with the sublime. And what Kant will say, were you ready for this? You look ready for it, Brenda. What Kant will say, Kant in his, um, Kant, as you'll all know, wrote the Critique of Pure Reason. Um, he also wrote two other critiques. The three of them merged together. The second critique is called the Critique of practical reason, just by way of footnote, practical there does not mean um, figuring out that they're really about two and a half centimeters to the inch. Um, practical means having to do with action rather than having to do with knowledge. So the second critique is about the will, not, um, not about just let's be practical. Um, and the third critique is called the critique of judgment. So there's pure reason. The original name for the critique of practical reason is actually the critique of pure practical reason. And the third critique is the critique of judgment. Um, and in the critique of judgment, 
in, um, and Kant sees these as the three things that, the, Kant not alone sees these things as the three things that human minds have to do. We have to understand, we have to will, and we have to judge um, in order to do either understanding or willing. So the third critique, the last, and in a sense, he says the bridge that, that, that bridges the first two is the critique of judgment. Critique of judgment is in two parts. The first half, which is the one everyone reads, you should read the second half, but no one ever does. The first half is the critique of aesthetic judgment. So he says, if you want to figure out how we know that two plus two is four, or um, that if two plus two is four and four plus two is six, then two plus four is six. If you want to know how we figure that out, we should think about how we make judgments that don't take any work. Because those judgments always do take work, and it may be that the work that we're doing is just kind of mechanical and we can't trust it. But what about judgments that are effortless, he says? Well, really, there are only two judgments that are effortless. This is, this, some people think this is ridiculous, but Kant um, nevertheless says so. There are, two, there are only two effortless judgments. Um, one, that something is beautiful or not beautiful, and the other, that something is sublime or not sublime. Um, and really, we can just stop with beauty. That is, you see a flower and you say, oh, how beautiful. And you don't have to say to yourself, do I find that flower beautiful or not? You look at it, and you just see that it's beautiful. It's not a question you have to ask yourself. It's not a process of reasoning you have to go through. Um, a way to understand this, um, a good way, is that if someone tells you that um, the house um, at the end of the street is blue, um, then you know something about the house, namely that it's blue. Um, if someone tells you that the house at the end of the street is beautiful, you know nothing. And if you go see that house, um, you may agree or disagree, but you never trust someone else to tell you what's beautiful. I mean, you may trust them to tell you it's worth your while. If they tell you it's beautiful, you may say, okay, they think it's worth my while to go, and they're usually right. But they haven't told you anything by telling you something is beautiful. Um, they haven't even told you it's not a wreck, because some people find wrecks beautiful. Um, so it's, it sounds like the house is blue, and the house is beautiful, it sounds like they have the same form, that they're claims about a house. But one is a claim that you can believe secondhand, and the other isn't. So Kant is interested in judgments that you have to make yourself, and that don't take any work to make. You believe the Pythagorean theorem, but even if you don't know how to prove it, which I'm not well, another idea I'm not going to entertain, um, but you believe that a squared plus b squared equals c squared, um, and um, if someone teaches you that, you accept it. Um, but if someone tells you that Johnny Depp looks better now than he did 15 years ago, you'd have to go look at what Johnny Depp looks like now. Um, that would be good if that were true. Um, but you would have to, you, you wouldn't just say, oh, that's lucky. Um, thank you for telling me that I didn't know it. I'm glad. Um, you have to look. Um, so that's a judgment of the beautiful. It's effortless, and you do it yourself. Um, you do it and you're confident that you're right because it's not even a question of being right. It's a question of <clears throat> how you perceive what is half created in your mind. Um, so the sublime, Kant says that the beautiful is something which, I can't believe I'm going into this and not the SIM man, but I will. Is this okay? Yes. Don't answer that. Kant says that the beautiful 
is something that looks like um, it has a purpose, but we don't judge it by way of its purpose. That is, that um, if you look at a flower, it's beautiful. And in fact, 100 years after Kant, it's possible for Darwin to say what the purpose of flowers are. Sort of. He kind of gets it right. Um, uh, but you don't need to know that it has a purpose to find... You don't need to know what the purpose of something is to find it beautiful. Um, but it looks like it has a purpose. Um, and so Kant's famous phrase for that is purposiveness without purpose. It looks like it has a purpose, but what that purpose is is, a, is not, um, not part of our finding it beautiful. Um, we don't have to think, oh, the reason that scissors look like this is because they cut. It's no, they just look really good. Um, the sublime by contrast, never looks like it has a purpose. This is, this is the major thing Kant is saying about the sublime, that if the beautiful looks purposive, that is purposeful, the sublime always looks like it ruins purpose, like it's random, that it's a storm of randomness, a storm of, um, of things that don't seem designed for anything but just are what they are and what they are is scary. Um, there's something always chaotic about the sublime. Um, the beautiful is regular, the sublime is chaotic. So the movement into Romanticism is a movement towards the sublime. Even the accounts of beauty that you get in Romanticism, as in Tinter and Abbey, are um, accounts of beauty that are really um, have the texture of the sublime. Same with Frost at Midnight. It's really beautiful to see the icicles shining to the moon, but the stillness itself is vexing rather than soothing. Um, even the most beautiful, what should be the most beautiful possible experience, experience of pure silence and stillness, becomes vexing instead and, and strange and frightening. Um, and that's something that you really, really won't find in Dryden and Pope. So I guess I just want to look at two things uh, quickly. Um, one is um, just the, I hope you read the um, uh, epistle to the reader and also uh, the design of the poem. Um, but if you look at page 502, if you have the, um, the Twickenham edition, um, he says, and if you don't, I'll just read it to you. The science of human, this is Pope in prose. The science of human nature is, like all other sciences, reduced to a few clear points. There are not many certain truths in this world. It is therefore in the anatomy of the mind as in that of the body. More good will accrue to mankind by attending to the large, open, and perceptible parts than by studying too much such finer nerves and vessels, the conformations and uses of which will forever escape our observation. Um, he was wrong about that. Uh, he didn't know that microbiology was a mere 200 years away. Um, the disputes are upon all these last, about these little things, and I will venture to say they have less sharpened the wits than the hearts of men against each other and have diminished the practice more than advanced the theory of morality. If I could flatter myself that this essay has any merit, it is in steering betwixt the extremes of doctrines seemingly opposite in passing over terms utterly unintelligible and in forming a temperate yet not inconsistent and a short yet not imperfect system of ethics. So 
there he's talking about his ideas, but really he's also talking about the heroic couplet, if you think about it. That is temperate, balanced, steers between extremes, reconciles things that people think are irreconcilable through the antithetical and balanced style. And then he even goes on in the next paragraph, this I might have done in prose, but I chose verse and even rhyme for two reasons. Um, I should remind you, in case you didn't pick this up from the footnote, that this is published anonymously. And he's explicitly saying, well, Mr. Pope published some moral epistles, so I thought maybe I should too. Um, but he's not saying who he is. Um, so there's, so um, it's not people are saying, oh, cool, Pope's essay on man is out. Some people are, but most people are wondering who this is who's actually said he's not Pope. Um, even though he is. On the other hand, Walt Whitman um, reviewed Leaves of Grass, which was published anonymously, and he, re he reviewed it anonymously. Um, he had some complaints about it, too, um, but he liked it. He gave it a good review. Uh, tomatoes, not splotches. Um, this I might have done in prose, but I chose verse and even rhyme for two reasons. The one will appear obvious, that principles, maxims, or precepts so written both strike the reader more strongly at first and are more easily retained by him afterwards. The other may seem odd, but is true. I found I could express them more shortly this way than in prose itself. And nothing is more certain than that much of the force as well as grace of arguments or instructions depend on their conciseness. So there he says that actually he could make the philosophical argument better in verse than in prose because it was more concise where concision, it turns out, is actually um, part of the force of the argument. Because the fact that you can say something concisely is a good sign that it's true. That's essentially what Pope is saying. Truth had better be um, able to be put concisely. Um, and, but the idea that you can put something concisely Really, that's, that's the opposite, again, of a Wordsworthian or Coleridgean idea. They meditate. Pope is not meditating. The closest thing we have to a meditative poem that we've read in this class by Pope is really Eloise at Abelard. Um, that's probably the poem that's closest to Romanticism that we have by Pope. Okay, I want to look at one other moment. Um, and Marielle, we're, we're actually about to stop because I got stupidly double booked today. So, um, just so you know. Uh, go to, this is page 534 in the Twickenham. Um, and um, uh, it's the end of book three, uh, epistle three of the essay on man. Um, and let's just start... Um, uh, at line 293 of Epistle 3. Um, so he's, he talks about how jarring interests of themselves create the according music of a well-mixed <coughs> state. Again, that could be a description of the poem, of, of the heroic couplet, of his poetic mode. Jarring interests of themselves create the according music of a well-mixed state. Such is the world's great harmony that springs from order, union, full consent of things, where small and great, where weak and mighty, made up, no close stop there. This is one of the rare occasions where you have enjambment in Pope. Notice it, treasure it. 
we're small and great, we're weak and mighty, made to serve, not suffer, strengthen, not invade, more powerful each as needful to the rest, and in proportion as it blesses, blessed, draw to one point. This is about as far as you ever get from subject to predicate, subject to verb in Pope. Small and great, weak and mighty, line, 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 draw to one point. Four lines. Milton does that, Wordsworth does that, Coleridge does it, Pope doesn't, but he does here. So from order, union, full consent of things, we're small and great, we're weak and mighty, made to serve, not suffer, strength that made to strengthen, not invade, more powerful each as needful to the rest, and in proportion as it blesses, blessed, draw to one point. They all draw to one point. And to one center bring beast, man, or angel, servant, lord, or king. So it's almost as though what you're getting there are six lines that then resolve into a heroic couplet. And it's self-descriptive. And that self-descriptiveness is part of what he means, that he really can take on the whole universe and show how ultimately everything comes together. And it comes together in a way where we say, see, this is the center and it's all there. And all you need is, in a couplet, is ultimately line one, everything, line two is here. That's the heroic couplet as theology and philosophy in a nutshell. And I gotta go. Is your hand up? Ask one quick question. And if not, no, okay, good. Okay, see you guys. The exam is a week from yesterday at six. Um, go to Latte or Sage or wherever to find out where, um, but that's when.